Well, we today are going to continue in this series that we have been in called Complicado. How are we holding up? <laughs> it's been a little bit of a slog. It's, it's a real subject and it's hard. And Chris said a couple weeks ago, I want to also just say how grateful we are for the manner in which you've engaged in these conversations. Uh, even where we disagree, you're doing that in a way that is full of grace and love for one another and that wants to seek what does scripture say and how do we live that out? Well, today we are in week five. Uh, there's one more week after this. Next week we're talking about politics, and I'm not going to be here because I'm going to be a man camp. <laughs> and maybe that's okay. Uh, but so far we've looked at this biblical mandate that we have as followers of Christ, as the people of God, to love the immigrant and the refugee and the foreigner among us. We've looked at the scope of the crisis. We've seen the statistics on how many refugees and immigrants and displaced people there are in the world. We've looked at the statistics on how difficult it is for these people to find refuge anywhere in the world. We've looked at the statistics of how few of them are actually able to find refuge in our country. And we've looked at the statistics of how few Christians in America are even aware of this crisis much less engaged in the crisis. It's sort of a secondary crisis, if you will. We faced the reality of how difficult and how complicated this issue is, and we faced the reality that we, like so many churches in America, have not engaged the way Scripture would mandate. There is a disconnect between what Scripture paints as a picture of who we are to be and how we have acted, some of us, many of us. Last week, Chris talked about this continuum that we use to kind of understand how we do discipleship in the area of outreach. He said that for many reasons, many of us living in our culture are insulated from the nature of crises like these. We don't have to face them. And part of our responsibilities as disciples of Jesus is to pull back that insulation and to be exposed, to be introduced to the nature and the realities of these crises. And then once we've been introduced, we need to figure out how would Scripture, how would God have us engage in this in ways that reflect God's character and God's heart. And for some of us, for all of us, there are ways in which we can be advocates for God, advocates for people, God's creation in this world. Many of us came into this series pretty insulated from this crisis, unaware of the scope of the problem, insulated by the political noise insulated by, by news and, and the media that portrays these stories in certain ways on both sides of the spectrum. But not anymore. Anyone who's been here for the last four weeks has now moved from insulated to introduced. We've faced, we've, we've faced the statistics. We've heard the stories. We've seen the photos. And we've moved on this continuum and even in small ways. Chris, last week, said that the church of God is at its best when we respond not simply as slacktivists, which isn't a word, and I love it. <laughs> simply commenting on it and posting about one side or the other, agreeing or condemning, that, but doing nothing. He's saying the church is at its best when we actually respond, when we stop saying someone should do something and instead actually be that someone. But that's the tension. That's the tension we've heard from you. That's the tension that we faced last night. Our small church got together. And we were just talking about the crises, the challenges right in our own communities. Food shelves that are empty. People that are being trafficked. All of these different issues that are so difficult. And you don't have to go outside of our own city limits to find them. How do we as followers of Christ figure out which of these things are we supposed to engage in? Where should we be investing our time and our money and our resources? 
how do we discern that process? One of the things we like to say here at ECC is no one can do everything, but everyone can do something. Chris, last week, said this, and I loved it. In a world as broken as ours, everyone should be engaged in a substantive something. I think that resonates with me and with many in this room. In a world as broken as ours, everyone should be engaged in a substantive something. So that's what we're going to look at today. What's your substantive something? And I think in that, there's a place to write this in your notes. What's your substantive something? There's stuff that we all can do. There's stuff that only God can do. And I believe that there is stuff that only you can do to address this crisis, to find your substantive something. And how do we determine what that is? Well, today I want to look at one biblical framework for, for figuring out how do we respond to this. I'd invite you uh, to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Micah. If you're here today and you don't have a Bible at home, we would love to send you home with one as a gift today from us. There are stacks of them that are at the back tables, and we'd love to send you. It's a good book. You should read it. (laughs) The book of Micah is the story of the people of God in a situation that's not that different than the church in America today. It's the story of a people of God who are going about their everyday lives and who failed to recognize, to see the crisis of injustice that was right around them, right in front of them. And they failed to see it. They failed to be the people of God who God had called them to be. And in some ways, instead of bringing justice, they were even contributing to the problem. And God, through the prophet Micah, basically Micah gives them a wake-up call. God issues two indictments against the people of Israel through the prophet Micah. The first indictment is against the political systems, the political leaders of the land. They were corrupt and they were broken and they didn't reflect God's care for the poor and for the vulnerable, God's heart for justice. And instead, these political leaders were actually contributing to the problem by passing unjust laws. And it's easy for us to hear that in our context and go, yeah, get them. It's the politicians and they're stupid fighting. If they could just get over this, they could fix this. And while there is some truth in that, the reality is God doesn't simply indict the political leaders. If you continue reading the book of Micah, you'll see that God also indicts the religious systems, the religious people for their complicity in the problem, for their lack of action, for their living in comfort while the vulnerable around them suffered, for their thinking of themselves first and foremost. And for failing to be the people of God that God had called them to be, invited them to be, commanded them to be. And God's accusation is just as pointed at the religious people as it is at the political leaders. And while the focus of God's accusation is on these two groups, the focus of God's judgment is on the whole nation of Israel. So God calls them out in response. The people basically say, okay, we confess. We see now, we have been introduced. We see that we have not acted the way we should. How do we make this right? What do we do? Do we offer sacrifices? Do we bring our children? What do we do to make this right? And I think that's where some of us are at today. Some of us are at in this journey. We've seen things we had never seen. We've understood things we've never understood. We've seen even in stark ways the the ways in which we have failed to respond to this crisis. And we're like saying, but what do we do now? 
Okay, we get it. We confess. But what do we do? Micah responds to the people of Israel by calling Israel to repent. That's a word we don't often use in our culture. But he calls them not to simply confess that there's been a breakdown, but to actually live differently, act differently, think differently, love differently. Repentance is more than just confessing. It's changing what we do. And Micah gives the people of Israel and us a framework for what repentance looks like. And he gives it to them in one of the best known passages in the Bible. A passage we don't often associate with repentance. A passage that you've seen on bumper stickers and on t-shirts and on posters. It's a, a passage that's been turned into songs. A passage that has for generations divided the church along political lines. Micah 6, 8. Listen to these words. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. I love that he refers to us as O mortal. It's like a reminder, like, remember, you're mortal. <laughs> you're not God. But then he goes on to say, remember, O mortal, that God has shown you what is good. He's already shown you what you should do. This isn't a mystery. This isn't some hidden secret. God has already told you back in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. The book of Deuteronomy is absolutely full of what is good, of what you are to do. This is your history. This is your story. This is who you are as the people of God. Remember who you are. Continuing in verse 8. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Micah is saying that repentance looks like these three things. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. But the question that struck me this week as I was reading this is, why three? You know, if your kid's acting badly, you just say, stop doing that. <laughs> Isn't it enough for God to simply say, you haven't been just, act justly. In a sense, yes. But I think in another sense, part of what God is doing here is he's saying, I want you to do these three things because God acts justly, but God also loves mercy. And God doesn't want us to simply act like him. He wants us to be like him. He wants us to see the things that he sees, to love the way that he loves, to do the things that he does, and to see the people that he loves. The only way for us to be like him is to humbly walk with him. So what does that mean for us? How does that help us find our substantive something? Well, I think first of all, it shows us that there are substantive somethings that all of us can do. We all can act justly. In fact, there's a place to write this in your notes. God requires us to act justly. It's the stuff that all of us could do. We don't have to pray about it. We don't have to discern it. We don't have to ask one another, should we do this? There's no one who's a follower of Christ who can say, I'm not sure I'm called to act justly on this issue. <laughs> no one. Nowhere in scripture, for instance, is act justly a spiritual gift that some of us have and others don't. <laughs> we are all called, we are all commanded to act justly in issues like this. It's sort of the lowest common denominator. It's like the parent who says, I don't care if you actually respect your teacher, you will act respectfully. Who hasn't done that as a parent? Right? It's the lowest common denominator. And throughout the series, we have seen ways that all of us can act justly. We can act justly in the way that we talk. Words, as Chris said, build worlds. Words 
matter. The things that we say, the things that we post, how we talk matters. Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. What are your words reflecting of the condition of your heart? We've moved on this continuum. So when we hear ourselves, our kids, our friends, our coworkers say things that characterize immigrants and refugees as aliens, as illegals, we have to now see that differently. We can no longer dismiss it as harmless or just words. It's wrong. It's sin. And it has no place in the life of a follower of Jesus. But conversely, when we say, when we post words that are full of hate and vitriol about whatever other political party we don't agree with, that is also not acting justly. That is also sin. Our words matter. Speak justly. We can also act justly in the way that we welcome the stranger among us, the way that we look at, the way that we smile at, the way that we talk to immigrants in our lives. Get to know an immigrant. Get, get to know that coworker or, or that person that you've just met or, or the, the family that just moved in down the street that you have not yet knocked on the door and welcome to the community. One of the activities that our uh, small church curriculum asked us to consider as small churches is to actually invite a refugee or an immigrant into our homes for a meal or for coffee. The statistics, if you've done the reading, on how many refugees will ever be invited into the home of an evangelical are really discouraging. But we can fix that. <laughs> we can end that. Welcome justly. We can act justly in the way that we choose to stay engaged in this. The series end next week, but we don't have to end our engagement with this topic. Choose to see. Choose to stay engaged. Choose to read the books we've recommended. Talk to the experts. Choose your sources wisely. We can all act justly in the way that we engage in the political process in our country. Our political process is broken, it's not perfect, it's not a perfect tool, and yet it is a tool that we have that we must use wisely and we must use justly. And this series, this exposure should influence the way we engage in the political process, not just who's president, but throughout the different tiers policy. Engage justly. One that occurred to me this morning that's not in my notes. One of the ways that we can all act justly is to pray. Pray for immigrants and refugees, for the displaced people in this world, that they might experience justice. But also, pray for our leaders. Pray for our president. It is not difficult to lob grenades over the wall of the White House on social media. But are you praying for our leaders, for our president, that they would find justice, that they would be able to enact justice, God's justice, in this world in a way that, that this just for immigrants and refugees and for citizens. That's hard. We need to be praying for them. And that's something that we all can do and all must do. We don't have to discern anything about that. We don't have to pray if we should pray. <laughs> we should pray. And then it starts getting a little more complicated. According to Micah, we need to not only act justly, but we also need to love mercy. And that's one of those things that sounds great on a t-shirt. Like, love mercy. Oh, but I think for me, at least, that's harder. I mean, we don't choose what we love. We just love it. I never made a choice to love Taco Bell. I just do. <laughs> I could make a choice to love health, but right now my love of Taco Bell transcends. Off subject. I think on this particular topic, 
Many of us love justice. But do we love mercy? We love mercy when it's extended to us, right? I mean, when we don't get that speeding ticket we probably deserved. When, when the boss gives us an extension on that project we probably should have had done. We love mercy when it's for us. But how, how about when it's extended to others? Maybe somebody who doesn't deserve it. Or maybe somebody who hasn't gone through the right process. Or maybe someone whose views on this matter don't align with ours. Do we love mercy when it's extended to them? Do we love mercy? I think there's some people who just naturally have more of a tendency to love mercy. Who maybe have the spiritual gift of mercy. That is, I think, a real spiritual gift. It's not one that I have. (laughs) The truth is, I'm a firstborn. I'm a rule follower. I like systems. I like people to follow the rules. And so for me, it is much easier to love justice, to love act justly, because act justly is something you can measure. It's a checklist that you can mark in yourself and more importantly, in other people. Right? But for me, love mercy is harder because you can't measure it the same way. You can't control it the same way because it's something that we love Some of us have a naturally high capacity to love mercy, and some, like me, have more of a natural capacity to love justice, and both are important. But our capacity to love mercy can't be determined by our natural disposition to love mercy. Any more than our capacity to act justly can be determined by our natural disposition to act justly. This isn't about how you're wired. This is about what God has commanded us to be and what God is creating us to be, and we must hold both in balance. We don't love mercy only if it comes naturally to us. We are required to love mercy. We are to love mercy because we have received mercy as followers of Christ. First John 4 says, we love because he first loved us. Notice that it doesn't say we love God because he first loved us. It simply says we love We are a people of love because God first loved us. We love mercy because we remember our own story, our own journey. We remember that we have been shown mercy, grace. We have been shown unmerited favor that we did nothing to deserve. That while we were still sinners, God showed us mercy. That is a fundamental belief. That we hold. It's why we rehearse on a monthly basis communion. It's why on a weekly basis we talk about what Christ has done for us and in us. But even remembering that, I think it's still hard for many of us, myself included, to always love mercy. But there's good news. There's a place to write this in your notes. God empowers us to love mercy. To love beyond our own capacity or our natural tendency. 1 John 4, that same passage says this, No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. If we are willing to love, God lives in us and makes his love come to full expression in us. I think one of the reasons why God requires us to act justly by following God's commands is that God then empowers us to do that which we can't naturally do on our own. To love, to love one another, to love the stranger, to love mercy. 
Back in the Gospel of John, Jesus said these words, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask my Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. It's a command. If you love me, follow my commands, but it's a command followed by a promise. If you do, I will ask my Father to send another, an advocate who will live in you and with you and will walk with you and empower you to do that which only God can do in you. When we choose to act justly, we grow in love, not simply by practice, but because God is in us, accomplishing that which we cannot. Same section of scripture, 1 John 4 says this, God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we'll not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus in this world. I love that picture of makes our love more perfect. Whatever little bit of love that we can imperfectly put out there, God can take that and live in that and indwell that and make it more perfect in us. This is the stuff that only God can do in us, but we have a role to play. As we choose to live in love, we live in God and God makes our love more perfect. God's love is brought to full expression. C.S. Lewis, who's one of my favorites, so I quote him all the time, says this, don't waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do, as soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. <laughs> Fake it till you make it. <laughs> we can't do this on our own. The challenge that we are faced with, with 70 million people displaced in this world, the challenge we are faced with, with the political divide that exists in our culture, it is too big for us to love on our own. This is more than we can tackle. And yet scripture is full of story after story of giants who are too strong, of armies that are too big, of journeys that are too great. And stories of a God who is the God of the possible. And with God, all things are possible. Which brings us to the last point. God invites us to walk humbly with him. God promises that he will be with us forever, helping us to act justly, but not just act justly, but to grow in our capacity to love mercy. If we abide in him and if we walk humbly with him, Humility. I think it's safe to say in this room that there is not a tremendous amount of humility in a lot of the discourse around this subject. And the news media, by our political leaders, and the social media posts that we read and sometimes post ourselves. Humility does not mark this discussion. And yet we are called to walk humbly with our God. What would that look like for us as followers of Christ to live into this? I think a part of it means acknowledging that we don't know it all, that our attitudes and our behaviors have not always reflected the heart of God on this issue. That's something that all of us need to face, need to invite God to explore in us. I think humility looks like acknowledging that we have allowed news sources and political parties on both sides to shape our views on this more than we've allowed Scripture to shape our views. Humility means facing that. Humility means acknowledging that we've sometimes placed our own comfort, our own agendas, our own political party, 
ahead of the priorities of God in this world. I have. I still do. That's what we naturally do. But again, C.S. Lewis says this. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility, I think, walking humbly with God is confessing before God and before one another, for me, that I have often, and I still often place my needs and my desires and my plans and my priorities ahead of God's plan for me, for my family, ahead of God's plan for this world. Acknowledging that, confessing that. But repentance is actually then turning away from that and doing something different. Humility is acknowledging before God that we don't know what to do. That the problem is too big and that our solutions are too small. And acknowledging that we need God to act in this God-sized challenge. Which brings us back to the question of the day. How do we find our substantive something? The way in which we can engage in this crisis that is substantive, that is reflective of the heart of God, the substantive something that only you can do. How do you discern what God would have you do or do differently in your life, having now been introduced and engaged in this conversation? Chris, last week, pointed to the story of Stephen in the book of Acts, chapter 6. And he said this, Every believer should be trending towards Stephen-ness. It's not actually a word. (laughs) But I think we knew what he meant. Stephen has given us as an example of a person who engaged in a problem. And so let's look briefly at how Stephen got to his level of Stephen-ness. As Chris said last week, the early church was facing really sort of its first crisis. They were blowing up in numbers. They were explosive growth. Those are really violent analogies. They were experiencing really good growth. And they were running into a crisis of who was getting food and who wasn't. Who was privileged and who wasn't. And so what do they do? Verse 2, so the 12 called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food problem, uh, program. So basically they're saying, okay, we've got a problem. We all agree that it's a problem. Even if we don't agree what the cause of the problem is or what the solution to the problem is, we have a problem. How then did they discern what they should do? How did Stephen discern his own substantive something in this crisis? Let's look. Verse 3, and so brothers, select seven men who are all well-respected, And are full of the spirit and wisdom. And we will give them this responsibility. They discerned it because they were appointed. Basically, right? And so if we were to apply this principle literally here today, we could just assign people tasks, right? I mean, like basically, okay, Mark, you're moving to Greece. uh, And you're starting an orphanage. And you're going to move to Syria and fix it. So we don't have (laughs) refugees anymore. And... You might just need to work on being nicer. (laughs) Is that what they did? Is that biblical? Is that the lesson of Acts 6? No, I think the lesson is is that they went back to the community. That this discernment process of figuring out who does what was discernment done in community. Speaking to one another. Knowing one another. Going together to God and saying, Holy Spirit, guide us to the people that you would choose to be engaged in this process based on their skills, their interests, their passions, their life history, but also on their heart for you. On a measure of how full they are of the Spirit of God and how much wisdom 
that. I think the lesson is discernment happens in community. We need each other. You need people who know you, who know your gifts and talents and passions, but also who know your heart for God, who know your journey in walking humbly with God. People who are praying for you and with you. People who have permission to say into your life, you know what, I think you would do really well at. Or people who would say, I feel God may be calling you too. Or even people who would say, what if we together did? Discernment like this, like Acts chapter 6 is done in community with other believers who are together seeking the will and the wisdom of God. Becca Backman, who's our outreach director, who I didn't say, tell her I was going to say this, she'd love to meet with you. <laughs> she would love to meet with you, to talk with you, and to discern with you, how do you discern your right place, your substantive something? But the reality is, Becca's not the only one that can do that. There's lots of contexts in which we, as the people of God, can do this with and for one another. We can discern in our small churches what God is calling us to. We can discern in one-on-one relationships with one another, with a mentor who's been discipling you and knows not just how you're wired, but what God has been doing in your life, the journey you've been on. Discernment can happen in our families and with our friends. Have you ever had a conversation with your spouse or with your parents or with a sibling where you've said, would you be willing to pray with me and for me so that we together can determine how God would have me respond in this situation. I think that process of spiritual discernment and community is a great way to find that substantive something that God has uniquely equipped and called you to engage in. But I think discernment can also happen scripturally, one-on-one. It can happen in our alone time. It can happen between you and God. But oftentimes, that's not going to happen if we don't push pause on the busyness of life And spend dedicated time listening for the voice of God. Throughout Jesus' ministry in the New Testament, we see this pattern where he is actively engaged in ministry. And he's working and there's pressing needs. There's people who need healing. And there's people who need feeling. And there's feeding. And there's miracles that he's miracling. And Jesus pauses. And he gets in a boat and he rides across the lake. Or he goes to the wilderness so that he can spend time with the Father discerning the will of the Father. That's going to take a change in what we do, how we spend our time, to be able to take that time away to say, God, speak to me. Give me the margin to hear your voice. But when we're willing to do that, to be one-on-one with God or, or in community seeking discernment, we see that our response could look like so many things. Our substance of something could look like as many desires and as many gifts are represented in this room. As I was trying to create a list of what are some of the ways, the examples. We can't tell you how to vote. We can't tell you how to lots of things. I can't tell you what your substantive something is. I'll give you examples. So, so These are some of those. I, I thought about how much time, how much of our lives are consumed with our kids' sports. What if we viewed sports as not just one more thing about, in our kids' lives that can be all about them, <laughs> but as an opportunity to actually get to know other people, to get to know immigrant families. For the kids who play soccer, it's an opportunity for for you, for them, to get to know kids who are new to this country and to get to know their families and build relationships that go beyond the field, that go into your homes and into your lives. Something as simple as the sports that we're already doing is an opportunity to find a substantive something. How many in the room speak English? 
I should be seeing most every hand, right? The truth is, that's something that most of us in this room are able to do well. Me, sometimes. Tutoring is an awesome opportunity for us to give substance to these immigrants that are wrestling through so many things. We work with two different organizations specifically. One that's called SALT, which is an acronym for Somali Adult Literacy Training. And the other one is called the Bhutanese Community Organization of Minnesota. Essentially, what these organizations train volunteers to do is to go in on a weekly basis and do one-on-one tutoring, giving new immigrants the ability to do, to, to learn to do English. There we go. I need some tutoring. <laughs> Training is provided. Uh, tutoring, tutoring is just such a helpful gift that we can give to immigrants, a tool. Becca Backman, uh, who's our outreach director, is doing some tutoring right now with the refugee family who recently came to the U.S. and who speaks Swahili. And she, told, she gave me these words. She said, I'm seeing this firsthand how difficult life is here without English. It's not impossible, but everything takes so long. And they're always wondering if they fully, if they understand fully what they're getting into. We talked about this last night as a small church. I mean, just imagine navigating the mail you get every day. to trying to figure out, like, did I actually win the lottery? <laughs> you know, is this real? Is this bill real? Is this statement real? Think about the voicemails that we get that are letting us know that the IRS is going to arrest us if we don't call such and such a number. Now imagine navigating that without English. Imagine navigating what a permission slip for your kids to go on a field trip really means. What does it mean that I'm signing this waiver? In tutoring English and working with these people, we can help them with these basic things that seem so simple to us and yet are so overwhelming oftentimes to them. She goes on to say, I'm seeing how lonely it is when you can't communicate what you want with others and you're never able to go below the surface with conversation. Becca, and, and I think so many others like her, are helping give this gift of language, not just for the practical reasons, and those are really, really valuable, but also so that these people who feel so isolated without the ability to engage are given the opportunity to be known and to know and to express who they really are, their deep feelings, their needs, their desires, and their dreams. That's one way. That's a substantive something that you can engage in. And you, we will train you. I won't train you because I don't speak English good. I know that some of you have the ability to build stuff. One of the guys here at ECC who's a carpenter was able to build a wheelchair ramp for the home of a refugee child who lives in a wheelchair. That simple act that is so easy for him transformed that child's life and that family's life. It's simple for him, but it is a substantive something. And I know that there are builders in this room. I know there's others here that have a background in medical fields. Several of our people work at St. Mary's Clinics, which is one of the partners we're highlighting during this series. It's a community clinic that works with a lot of immigrant families. And whether you're a medical professional or not, there are opportunities for you to help and volunteer and provide health care to immigrant families that come. Imagine the challenges of navigating our health care system without English. Others of you have legal expertise, and you could volunteer for Arrive Ministries and give legal consulting and representation to these clients and to these immigrants who are coming, who, who are trying to navigate the system that we find confusing. You know, another one is volunteer at whatever elementary school is closest to you, or at my kids' schools. If you're in the Moundsview School District, our schools have so many immigrant families that are first generation. And what we can do to support these kids, to help these kids, is a support to their whole family structure. Something as simple as volunteering on a weekly basis at your kid's school can make a huge difference in the lives of an immigrant family. That is a substantive something. 
one of the ones we really want to feature during this series as we come to a close is Refugee Life Ministries. We've talked about it before. Refugee Life Ministries is a arm of Arrive Ministries. And essentially what they do is they identify teams of people from local churches like us. And this team of people works together to come around an immigrant family, a refugee family. They meet them at the airport, and then they help them just with the basic life skills of finding their apartment, finding pots and pans and mattresses and bed frames and furniture, figuring out how to open the mail and where the trash goes on trash day, how to fix the drain. These things that are so basic to us, but are so foreign to people that have just spent the last 20 years living in a refugee camp. They don't know how to fix blinds because they may have never had a window. That's a substantive something. I want to show you a quick video that is just the story of one group of people from here at ECC that has found their substantive substance, their substantive something simply by being friends to this refugee family. Let's watch. We're really blessed that Minnesota has the most refugees per capita of any state in the country. They come with experiences, they come with different traditions and cultures that quite frankly are pretty cool and we wouldn't know about or get to share in if they weren't here. Often when we hear about immigrants and refugees, we hear about it from the media and that's a lot of the times where we decide how we're going to think and what our opinions are going to be about it. But. We know as believers in Jesus that the way that we see people should be through the Word of God, what He tells us about people, that they're created in His image. It's such a clear-cut theological answer. We are to care for the alien and the stranger. We are to welcome the stranger because we were strangers. Phrases I'm hearing other people say got me to kind of step up and say, we'll do something about it then. Refugee programs kind of struck my heart because it's just something that I hold dear to me. and. My wife, Mary, and we talked about it and decided this is something we'd really like to do. So one of the fun parts about Refugee Life Ministries is you get to do it as a group. So you're not alone in it. You you have each other to support each other and lean on each other's different skills and interests. Being on a team with people that are coming alongside a refugee family, you really do get a sense of family because the adage, it takes a village, comes to mind. There are so many needs. You might be doing anything from helping them learn English to helping them fill up forms for their kids to go to school. What does it mean to go to the food shelf? Or even the grocery store, when they go to the grocery store, they might not even know what certain things are. Later too, the father of the Karen family I was involved with, he needed to get to English classes and he was just riding a bike. And so and not only did I teach him how to ride the city bus, but we rode the city bus from his house to the English classes together at least a couple, three times. And yeah, I was showing him the bus routes and showing him how to do it, but the whole time we're sitting on the bus together trying to develop our relationship even further. So you get things like that that really help you to get to know each other while you're helping.